Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. My guest today is Neil Oliver. Neil is an archaeologist, an author, and of course, a presenter here on GB News as well. And during the course of our conversation, we spoke about his background, how he got involved in archaeology and in broadcasting. We also spoke about the current culture wars and how dangerous it has become to speak the truth. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Neil, thanks very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. I'm glad you've made time for me. Absolutely. Uh, Now, everyone will know you from uh, your many, many documentaries, but also your work at GB News. Uh, But some people might not know how you got involved in all of that. Uh, You you did an archaeology degree originally. I did. uh, Oh, yes. Uh, uh, From 1984 to 1988, that long ago, Glasgow University. uh, And it was a a degree in archaeology. So that's my that's technically, I suppose, my first specialisation is archaeology. But it's one of those things that I, I, I can't, for some reason, I can't imagine little kids thinking, I want to go digging in the, in the dirt for, for elements of the past. Was it, uh, was it a vocation for you? Was it something you always wanted? It, uh, I, I was, my favourite subject at school was, well, it was, a, it was a close call between history and English. Right. Uh, and it, pro- history that nudged it. And I thought, I'll go to university and study history. I, I went to state school and I, I, there are, there, there were even then, there were some maybe more expensive fee-paying schools where you could study archaeology at school, but my school was not like that. Mm -hmm. But I I knew that I liked uh, history that was the the older the better. And the syllabus, the curriculum as it was when I was at school, we tended to do focus on things like the First World War and the Mm -hmm. Russian Revolution, which I enjoyed. But I knew in my heart I wanted to do older material and I hadn't had access to it. So I had applied to, to go to university to study history, but then when I when I got in amongst the prospectuses and went on the, the day trips to visit the universities, I realised there were you know there was the you know, ancient history department, there was the classics department, archaeology departments, a whole a whole different world of studying the past opened up to me, and quite honestly, I walked into the the archaeology department in Glasgow University, and it was in an old kind of Victorian uh, repurposed what had previously probably been a, a, a private house private home, but it had been repurposed as the archaeology department. And I honestly just walked in and kind of fell in love with the atmosphere of it. That sounds terribly shallow, but I did. And I saw all these people walking about who, who looked who looked quintessentially like archaeology students, you know, the sort of... Or like Indiana Jones. Well, well no, but it was a little bit, it was more like, you know, kind of rainbow-coloured home-knit jumpers. Okay. Patched yeah. trousers, and they all had long hair, and, and they, they just looked, they looked exotic to my country mouse yes. eyes. And there and then I made this decision to study archaeology, and it was, I just loved it. And as part of it, as part of studying archaeology, in the summer holidays, we would go on digs. Yeah. And that was a revelation. We would go away and live in the in the wilds, you know, sleeping on the floor of abandoned cottages and, and such, yeah. like in sleeping bags or in tents, um, you know, cooking communally. And it was all very hippie and it was like a, th- a throwback to the, I don't know, the summer of love or something. Yeah. And I just loved everything about it. And I loved the subject. I was yes. completely captivated, particularly by, well, as it turned out, Scottish prehistory. Yeah. Go figure. I just loved all of that. Orkney, Scarabri. Uh, you know, the Stones of Stennis, all of that, th- those, you know, those iconic sites. And then yeah. we, we also went to, you know, we, we would go on field trips to, to Wessex, to Stonehenge, to Avebury, Old Serum. Yeah. And I was, uh, I cannot tell you the extent to which I was just... What is it you think... It, it's so excited by it. What is it about ancient history that, that stirs you in this way, do you think? What is it about your relationship with history? Because it's, it's, 
I suppose it's a kind of time travel. There, there's something I've got a childish approach to it. I think ultimately, um, I'm excited by at a, a quite honestly a childish level about going to places where things happened an unimaginably long time ago. And when on digs, I remember being on my first dig and it was uh, a place called Loch Doon in Ayrshire in Scotland. And it was a Mesolithic a, 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 a hunter-gatherer site. And we were finding flaked stone in the main and evidence of where there had been little post holes in circles that had been shelters, temporary shelters, and evidence of burning where, where fires had been lit. And the thought that we were looking at, at fires that had gone out 8,000, 9,000 years ago blew my mind. Mm. And it, to some extent, it always does. And when you pick up a, a tool, a, a bit of broken stone, to, and you think, whoever made that dropped it consciously or unconsciously eight or 9,000 years ago, and mine is the next hand to touch it. And I, yeah. I, I found that it was like reaching across nine millennia and almost brushing hands with someone. Yes. And we, th th this particular moment where the site started to get inundated, it rained and rained and rained and we were beside a reservoir and the water level was coming up and we were starting to lose parts of the site. And uh, it was raining and everyone was miserable and the, the dig director, who was a guy that, he's, he's long dead now, but he had been, a, amongst other things, he'd been a Spitfire pilot during World War II. He was a really exotic figure, Tom Affleck, and I loved him. And uh, he, uh, he took me to this bit off that he'd excavated the year before and he showed me the plan of it, and it was just a, a, a plan. It was, the area I excavated was about the size, the size of this table. Mm. And he showed me the scale plan of it, and he said, and he had he had plotted on it every single flake of flint and chert that he'd found. Yes. And he said, can you see the pattern? And it was just a haze of, it was like a screenshot from Asteroids, you know, that, that computer game yeah. in the early days with the wee triangles that spun about, it was like that. And he said, look, and he showed, and there were, there were four spaces like like two beer mats side by side and then two smaller spaces behind them. He said, that's where the person knelt down. Right. Because when you kneel down and work with stone, there, n nothing lands where your knees and your toes are. Yes. And then that person stood up and walked away. And the thought that you could find where somebody knelt down for long enough to put an edge back on a stone tool yes. 8,000 years ago, that you could find it, put your hands down and know that that's where his or her knees were. Yeah. That ephemeral, that, that you could find something so ephemeral I thought that's like magic. That's as close as you're going to get to time travel. Absolutely. And so that was a formative moment for me. That dig with that director, Tom Affleck, I might have been more ambivalent about the subject, but that kind of visceral connection with what archaeology was capable of delivering to you. Yeah. That, that was well, it. I mean, it almost feels spiritual in a way, insofar as it's about a connection away among, among humanity across the eons, you know. You get carried away with it because, you know, you're reminded that in so many ways. I mean, how many times do you do something like kneel down to tie your shoelace or, or kneel down to pick something up that you've dropped? Yeah. So you get that moment of they might have lived all those thousands of years ago. Yeah. but they were In completely different contexts. Their, their, their circumstances were unimaginably different. Yeah. But they were just us. You know, you know there's this, we live in this world of smartphones and internet, but we're running hunter software. Yeah. For the most part, we are physiologically, cognitively the same creatures that that lived 100,000, 200,000 years ago. We're not different in any way, not not really. Yeah. Just our circumstances are, are are incredibly different. But when you when you scratch all that superficial surface stuff away, yes, 
and you think somebody just knelt and thought that's getting a bit blunt that yeah I'll just and they kneel down and, and you, th you can identify instantly with the thought process and I then think that's the same with literature it's a similar kind of thing I mean I can read an ancient work and I can see an emotion expressed I thought oh I was feeling like that the other day or something happened to me that related to that I mean I think of um you know even even the way that people are they, they mistrust younger generations and they struggle to kind of uh, adapt to changing norms. And then you read Aristophanes and in The Clouds there's a character complaining about all the young men taking all these hot baths and he doesn't like the way they're doing things differently. And it's the same emotion. Mm -hmm. It's just the context is different. Yeah, yeah. It's, and I, I've never, I was never terribly sophisticated about it. I, I was never cut out to be an academic. Yeah. I like the digging. And I finished my degree. And then I went off and went on lots of digs. That's yeah. how I lived for, for two or three years as a freelance excavator. And then, I, you know, you're asking me how, how it all began for me. I realised, I mean, I, was, I don't know, I was, what, 21, 22, I suppose, when I was doing it, 23. And I, I remember distinctly, I, 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 was on a, I, was on, I was excavating a bit of Roman Road up above Greenock, outside Glasgow, in November. Mm. And it was foul weather, it was like sleet. And we were on this moor up above the town and it was just bleak. Being another guy. And I remember thinking, I'm going to be 40 one day and I'm going to be arthritic and poor because there's no money in it. And right. I was never going to be doctoral. I was never going to, I was never going to be a lecturer and get into the academic establishment. And I thought, I, I much though I loved it, I thought, I can't, I can't keep doing this because I'm just yeah. going to, I'm just going to end up, you know, poor and broken. <laughs> and it was at that point that I got the opportunity by more by luck than good judgment to join a local paper back where, back at home. And I, got, I was offered this three-year, what they used to call an indenture, where I worked for the, for the local paper. And a couple of times across the three years, I was sent away to what was Napier College in those days. It was a polytechnic before it became a uni. Yeah. And I was put through the course and, and qual did shorthand. I used to go to night school to do shorthand and typing. Yeah. I was in this class. Of, it, was all, it was all girls, all young girls that were, that were learning shorthand and typing. And I got dropped in amongst them. As the only journalist, they so you learnt shorthand. You learnt, yeah, you yeah, T line, T line shorthand, hundred words a minute. You had to get it to get the NCTJ, the National Council for the Training of Journalists diploma, stipulated that you had to get to. I had one hundred and ten words a minute at one point, um, and my, and touch typing, and so I, and I, so I qualified, and then I worked. I changed papers. I worked for another paper outside Edinburgh. Uh, I used to do freelance shifts for the Sun and the and the Daily Record out right. of Glasgow. And we used to get sent out. I used to go in and cover for the for the staff. I'd go in and do like a Saturday and a Sunday, and you'd get sent out on what they call death knocks. What does that mean? Where, where in the in the old days, where, where there's always stories about someone being killed in a it, say say there's been a drug overdose or a, or, or a car crash, someone goes to the dead person's home, knocks oh, on the door yes. to ask if she can have a photograph because those stories work so much better if they're if they're ah, topped of off with a little head and shoulders shot of the person. And someone used to go and do that. And inevitably, the, the, the freelance in on a shift would get, so you'd get sent out to wherever to follow, to, to go to some sad home where somebody had died maybe just hours before. To, that, that's a horrible job. Horrible job, but everyone reads newspapers. and you know. And yeah. Strangely enough, I never once got any kind of trouble from doing it. You'd yeah. turn up in these houses and they would invite you in. Yeah. And you'd find yourself sitting at a kitchen table of a grieving family while somebody went through a photo album. Mm. They'd pick out a picture and you'd tell bring it back. And was that what mostly what you were doing? You reporting a lot on of that. Either and... whatever was coming up over the course of the Saturday. You know, you do Saturday for the Sunday edition and you would do the Sunday then, for the Monday edition. But you hadn't relinquished your passion 
for archaeology. No, I used to try. Things. I used to. I mean, you in, my, get it in, in my day job, <laughs> in my day job, because there were always digs going on. And so yeah. I would always cover them. So there'd be a dig going on somewhere nearby in our patch. And I would go out and talk to them and reminisce and then write up a story about I suppose, this. I suppose the problem is, though, you know, that's a passion that probably isn't seen as very sexy in terms of journalism or, in terms, you know, so writing a story about an archaeological dig. It's probably quite difficult to get that into the paper, is it? Or well, it, it, it was never really difficult, I suppose. I, I enjoyed it. I liked the idea of introducing that because yeah. it was a bit of a fringe topic, I suppose. But I did have contact. I was able to phone up people who were still in the business. Yeah. I could get good, uh, you know, good information. I could get reliable information that the archaeological community approved of. You know, right. I, I had a reputation for g getting those stories right. Yes. You know, because I knew who to talk to about them. And, and furthermore, I, I also there, there was something about the act of of journalising that appealed to the same part of me because. Ultimately, both journalism and archaeology are about trying to understand why people did something. Yeah, you are literally picking through debris. Yes, and interpreting it, uh, and trying to work out why that happened. You know that old adage that is it Kipling? I kept six serving gentlemen who taught me all I knew. Their names are how and why and when and what and where and who. Mm -hmm. If you ask those six questions about anything, you get enough information to write a story up. Yeah. And it's digging. It's digging. You know, the people talk about journalists digging for. And so it's, it's, it's an application of the same nosiness and curiosity about why people did, why, why did that happen? Does why? it ever frustrate you though? Because you can never f get the full story, can you? I mean, you say you can work out details here and there. Well, you never get the full story from an archaeological dig either. No. You just get a sketch, you get a glimpse and then you move on. Yeah. And likewise, part of the pleasure of journalism, especially when you're working on a local paper, uh, you become a little bit embedded in the community. Mm. Because people used to be quite uh, proprietary about their local paper. Yes. People would, would grow, it was something that dropped through the letterbox every, whatever, every Thursday night, the weekly paper would drop. And the people were often very fond of it. Mm. And, and so you, got, you could get quite intimate with people quite, because you were identified as one of the reporters from the local paper. Yeah. And you could, get, you could get in with people and they, would, and they would tell you things. So there was an intimacy to it. And archaeology can be intimate in a different way because, you know, for example, if you're excavating a grave, hmm. you know, so you're, you're, you're digging up the dead. And that's a very intimate experience because yeah. you're in touch with them physically and, and literally. And so there's both be, being a journalist, especially for a local paper, I think the, the reputation of journalism, journalists has probably has changed a lot. But especially even when I was doing it in the, the 90s, which when I when I did it most, there was still a, a, a degree to which the local paper reporter was trusted because mm. you lived there. You're not going to. It's not like dropping in from, you know, from London, going covering yeah. a story and then going stitching the people up because you're never going to see them again. When you work in the local paper, you're going to you're in the office every day. And yeah. You know where you are, yeah. and if they don't like what you've written about their mum, yeah. they come and yeah. tell you. You know, so there's a so there's a trust and an, and an, an intimacy to it, and you. And so both being a, a local paper reporter and an archaeologist offer, they satisfy partly the same emotion right. about being, getting, making intimate contact with, with people and finding out a little bit about them and spending a little bit of time with them. And then you move on to the... Is, so that, is that why you think a, a site like Pompeii is so popular? Because they people feel connected to the victims of that tragedy because they can see their everyday lives in a very sort of direct yeah, way. Yeah, I think, I think Pompeii works specifically because it 
feels like a snapshot. It feels mm. like frozen in time. Yeah. I mean, I think most, well, unless you go in the tour, I mean, people used to think that those the, the remains were, that they had been like turned to stone by some yes, sort yes. of plaster casts yeah. because there were voids. People found the voids where yeah. people had been, and they poured plaster in and they created these. But you still see their expressions. Yes, and, and that kind but, of thing. But there's undoubtedly, it, feel, it feels like the clock stopped in Pompeii mm. in a moment. Yeah. They were like turned to stone. Yeah, yeah. And that's, most that's archaeological sites are not like that. Mm. And, yeah. or, or, and they certainly can't trade on that. But yes, there, there is a sense where you can go and see, you're confronted with the people in their moment of agony. And, and, and the detail of the things that were preserved, you know, the, the, the type of snacks they were eating and, you know, yeah, the yeah. things like that. It, it's, it, the minutiae, and they keep I think, finding helps it. The, the, the human connection. Yeah, there's a site in uh, Vindolanda on, on Hadrian's Wall uh, up in, in, in the north of England. And the, f- the things they find there, it's very, uh, the, there's, uh, this, this, the conditions are such that there's a lot of waterlogging. Right. And organics and things that don't normally survive are, are there. Mm. And, you know, uh, so they found the most amazing things. And, and they found a lot of um, uh, correspondence. Right. Back and forth. And you've got people a- asking to be sent m- more pairs of socks because it's cold. Okay. So and those incred- very human things. It's incredibly intimate. You know, yeah. you've got basically young soldiers writing home yeah. and saying I'm so sorry I missed Lavinia's birthday but hopefully I'll be there this right. time next year and you think oh that's just that's exactly the kind of stuff that that soldiers now yeah you know would be sending back to their mums and their and their family and again so you get again you're brought face to face with God, people are just the same and how how did you go then from you know right you're working in local papers and everything. You've still got this enthusiasm oh, well, for archaeology. You end up doing BBC yeah, documentaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> latterly, I found out in about 1995, I found out about this newfangled thing called the internet. Right, yeah. <laughs> remember those days? What's that? I remember the days pre-internet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I got the chance to go and I worked for um, BT. I was mm. the, I was the, I was the webmaster. <laughs> You were the webmaster? For, um, in the days when nobody really knew what a webmaster was supposed to do, and I can tell you, I didn't really know what I was supposed to be doing, but we were, we were part of the team that were putting together content with millions of pages. Because the, when, when BT.com launched, there were, it was the third website in Britain. Right. Tesco had one, and the Royal Bank of Scotland, I think, had one. We were the third. And that, there was no interactivity. It was, they were really just like dumps of data. Mm. So that's why someone like me got that job, because the thinking was we better get people in from papers because this is a kind of an electronic newspaper. See. Okay. So there was a culture whereby people were getting pulled in from papers yes. to work on these fledgling websites okay. that nobody, they all thought they should have one, but they didn't know what to do with it. And they it. didn't know where it was going. What, 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 what is this? Yeah. You know, Bill, Bill Gates famously, his autobiography, The Way Ahead, he dedicated something. In the, when the manuscript went to the publishers, I think in 94, uh, he, he mentioned the internet two or three times, literally. Yes. Because he thought the future was software. Right. And people at the publishing house said, oh, well, I think you might want to have another look at that. I think maybe the internet's a bigger deal than you think. Yeah. And he went away and rewrote it thinking that the internet was now the important thing. So even Bill Gates at that point didn't didn't know what the internet was yeah. for or, or the effect it was going to have. So anyway, I did that for a few years and th- there came a day there where I thought, God, I have got so far from where I ever meant to be. Yeah, It's yeah. like I joined the wrong queue. Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah. I've followed people off. I, th- I didn't really... I th- didn't really, th- this isn't me really, this is not really what I want to do. Yeah. But I had always kept the archaeological connections going. I still had friends. 
And together with a with a pal, we he and I we set up um, what became the world's first and only excavation of the battlefield of Isandlwana in KwaZulu Natal in South Africa. All right, and which it was a that was a, a battle that was an obsession for both of us. We had both grown up watching Zulu, the Michael Caine, Stanley Baker movie, yeah, and Zulu Dawn, which was the well the prequel, <clears throat> and we got this opportunity to go out and survey and excavate on the site. Yeah. Now, I hadn't really travelled very much at that point. I was in my late 20s, early 30s when we got that project up and running and it was it was a revelation to me. I you know, I certainly hadn't done long-haul flights before and suddenly we're flying into Cape Town and, yeah. and whatever and picking up hire cars and driving to KwaZulu-Natal and, you know, and, and setting up an ex... We used to bring volunteers in to help us do the work. And... It became a little bit of a cause celebre, I suppose, because a lot of people knew about Isandalwana. If you're of a certain type, you know about the Battle of Isandalwana. And everyone knew about the film. Yeah, and the, the, the disaster that was inflicted upon the British army at Isandalwana was, the, was the, the like of which had never, they'd never experienced. It was the biggest defeat ever inflicted on the British army by, by an opposition armed with spears and shields. Yeah. And they, they were just outfought and out tactics on the day. The Zulus were just the better men. They yeah. just they just got in among the British army and wiped the floor with them. Yeah. And so we'd long wanted to go out and have a look at the place. And so we we were able to do it under the guise of running a, an archaeological right. excavation. And a, a TV production company in London called Optimum Television. Uh, Pat Llewellyn was the boss. She was behind the discovery of people like the Naked Chef, the Two Fat Ladies, Gordon Ramsay. She right. did all cookery, really. Yeah. But she decided that we had a website for our work and we had held a conference in Glasgow University and we'd, we'd invited other people from around the world who were excavating battlefields to yeah. come and confer. Yeah. They sent up a researcher and at the end of the conference, he came forward and said, we think this would make television, right. digging up battlefields. It sounds, you know, odd and interesting. Yeah. And long story short, that became a television series called Two Men in a Trench, mm-hmm. which filmed from about 2000 till about, I don't know, 2003, four. Yeah. Um, we excavated 12 British battlefields uh, and that was that opened the door into television yeah. suddenly. And subsequent to that, within a couple of years of that finishing, I got Coast and Coast was a big BBC yeah. effort and it saw a team of us circumnavigate the British Isles. We were only supposed to do it once, but it was popular and we kept doing it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I did that and then I got other work. I, I, then, I, then I did the Coast model in uh, Australia. We did Coast Australia yeah. with an Australian team, then Coast New Zealand yeah. with a Kiwi team. And I, so I, made, I made friends and, and connections, you know, at yeah. the other end of, of the world. And so... By that time, I had done a lot of television, you know, history of Scotland, history of ancient Britain, yes, all, all sorts of history, archaeology series, all of it kind of springing organically from the coast. Yeah, the 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 profile that I got from coast because coast for a while was very popular. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wonder about the popularity of that. There is something about the coastline, the sea, the proximity to the sea that draws human beings mm. quite inexplicably. I think. Yeah, it was a brilliant. If you, if you, the number of people that that think they were in the room when the idea for Coast came up, yeah, it's, it's legion. Yeah, about a thousand people think they were in the room when it came because it, it proved to be such a simple idea that has been essentially copied over and over again. Yeah, yeah. called different things, but it's basically channeling the fact that people 
everyone's got a connection to the coast. Yeah. Family holidays, days out, summertime. It, maybe it's where you met your wife. Maybe you went on honeymoon or whatever. Everyone's got connections to the, to the coast. Yes. And the, the series just tapped tapped into that. And a bit like the local paper thing, people once people realised that the coast was on the move, they'd be thinking, oh, they're coming to our bit next. Yeah, yeah. Either next week or the week after that, they'll be here. You yeah. know, so it had that it had that feel where people felt pulled together by it. Yeah. And uh, you know, we were and and because we did it over and over again, we ended up going everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I mean we were milking it <laughs> by the end. It's a great job. It was. Great. It was absolutely. Phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, the, the amount of, of Britain, the, 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 the number of places that I got the opportunity to visit, places I would never have heard of mm. and certainly would never have found the time to go and see. Yeah. And by the end of making, we did, I don't know, we did about 10 series of Coast in the UK. Yeah. And by the end of it, I had seen everywhere. And I had this, you know, I had this percent, it gave me that percent. So by the time I came in, so, so by, when GB News kicked off, I, I, I had... I had been sort of remade a bit by, by the experience of Coast. Yeah. Because the, genuinely, hand on heart, the experience of doing it was, was quite revelatory. Mm. Because, because you're on the ground and you would be going from England into Scotland or England into Wales or whatever. Yeah. And you, but there was that uh, realisation that you couldn't, there was no sensation of leaving one country and going into another. Right. You couldn't tell. You knew, well, we're crossing the border here. This is the border. The border's yeah, yeah. here somewhere. But, but it's not. And yeah. so I got, I got this sense of Britain's being one place. And this, I suppose. Which countered that whole, that, 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 that narrative that was running at the same time of nationalism, Scottish independence. Yes. And there's always Welsh independence as well. There's, there's always a clarion call for that. Um, English nationalism's always been, uh, you know, it's always been something you're not allowed to be. English, yes. English people have always not been allowed to be nationalists. But for me, I was running against that fact because I was thinking, but there's only one Britain. And so, 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 so your sort of, you know, in, um, experiences with these various coastlines, various areas of Britain, informs a kind of sense of continuity. And similarly with archaeology, you know, reaching back into the past and the shared humanity amongst differing people. Does this, for you, break down these barriers of nationalism? Absolutely, and, absolutely. And also because I, because of the way we experienced the landscape and, and also doing all the other... I did all sorts of things, Sacred Wonders of Britain. I was, I was always going into mm. little un, unexplored St. Nectan's Glen in Cornwall or would be on Iona or little Lindisfarne or little places that, you know, that, you know maybe not everyone had been to. And there was that, you know, that very, that very strong affection that was almost unavoidable mm -hmm. because we would go, we'd be going to meet people who absolutely loved their patch. And you'd, you'd, that's why we were meeting them. Yes. You'd be going to talk to somebody, their family had been fishing off this, this harbour wall for 300 years. Yes. And you'd go and, sp and you spend a day with them and you can't help but come away from it thinking, it's a fantastic place as well, isn't it? Don't you yeah. love it here? Yeah. You'd hear these stories from, from people Again and again and again, and and rather than feeling that you were experiencing the the texture of the of the place change because you travelled from England into Scotland or from or from or crossed to Northern Ireland, you got the sense that where there are variations, there are it's mile by mile, yeah, valley by valley, accent by accent. Those are really the textures that 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 uh, describe the differences hmm. ac across Britain. That's what you notice. Yeah, because you know you'd go from. Carlisle in the north of England, where there's a very strong kind of Cumbrian 
English accent, and then you go 20 miles across into Scotland, and it's a broad Scottish accent. Yes. And you think, how does that sustain? Why don't they sound the same as the people that we left half an hour ago? Yeah. How, how, is, that, how is that sense of self-sustaining itself? And so it was, you know, and you, and you would see that people in Cornwall, fisher folk in Cornwall, yeah. although they sounded different, they were they had so much in common with fisher folk in Aberdeen, you know, in the northeast of England. The, the the boats going out from you know from Bucky and Fraserburgh, and the communities living there had so much more in common with people in Cornwall than either had with people living in Birmingham. So, so you see a big distinction between, say, the the pride that people have in their communities and their traditions and their various things. Um, with a kind of rigid tribal nationalism that's, that that therefore wants to keep people out. Yeah, there's out. no one England, that's the thing. Or for me, Scotland. Yeah. The very no, the, the notion that that's Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP go on about Scotland, yes. it's very difficult to say what you mean by that. Because the borders, or the south-west, yes. or, or the central belt, Yes. Or or you or you move up into the northeast or the north. They're so different. You go out to the Western Isles. And Orkney. You go to Orkney's got Orkney's not is no more Scottish than it's yeah. Orkney. Yeah. When you go to Orkney you realise that they're they're Arcadian. And they're they're not even like Shetlanders. Yeah. The Shetlanders are different again. And the people of the Western Isles, they're different. The people that live in Melrose and Jedburgh, they're Because I very much felt that. Um, whenever I want to get writing done, I go away to Sark. Um, and I only went for the first time a few years ago, mm. but I've been there now three or four times a year because I, I, I sense that exactly what you're describing. This, this community, it's got its own parliament of 30 people who used to be feudal. I mean, it was oh. a feudal system until relatively recently. It's so, it's such a distinct identity. Oh, it's so, I, I, and during the, during the, um, now which, now which is it? Is it the, oh, it's the English Civil War. Mm. A Guernsey backed Parliament, Jersey backed the King. Right, and <laughs> uh, and when when there was the restoration, when Charles II was restored, he remembered that Jersey had been on his father's side. Right, and the he he gave he gave them he gave the 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 sheriff or or the, whoever the the, the 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 main man on Jersey territory yeah. in North America, hence New Jersey. Right. That's yeah. where. That's why there's a New Jersey, because he was honouring the fact that they had remained they, they'd remained faithful to the crown. Yeah. Unlike Guernsey. so even when you go to the Channel Islands, they're not even all one thing. No, there's an even a, a distinct ident- identity yes, between. Yes, they've, they've got. They've got. There's more than. There's more than one bailiwick. Yeah. That, that between in the in the Channel Islands, and that's that's the point really. So you think, oh well, the Channel Islands that must just be one place. Uh, no, it's not. I mean, I even spoke to an. an uh, a couple of uh, older people in one of the little shops on Sark who still spoke Sarkees, mm-hmm. which is a form of sort of dialect, which wasn't the same as the Guernsey dialect. Even there were subtle, there were differences. Uh-huh. It was, it was. And I think once you, once you, once you embrace that, that's what makes. That's part of what makes. Well, I suppose it's what makes anywhere fascinating. This just happens to be my homeland. Yeah. And and so I'm particularly, you know, uh, you know, excitable ab- about where I am from. But but it's it's also the case that there's been an England for a thousand years, yes. And there's been a Scotland under with an understanding of itself as a, as a place for a thousand years. And and Britain, I mean, Brit- the older word when the Romans splashed ashore here, yeah. you know, two thousand years ago, and asked the locals what the place was called, they were probably told something like Pridane. Mm. And so Britannia was the Romans' attempt to 
I see. M mimic that in, in the name that they gave to the province. So lying under everything was Britannia or Britain. Yeah. So, so, so there's the oldest understanding of this place predates England and Scotland. But nonetheless, there's been, uh, there's been England and Scotland for a very, very long time. Germany's only been Germany since uh, whatever it is, 1871. Yeah. Italy's younger. Yeah. In terms of these places coming together, having a sense of themselves as entities. Yes. But but that 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 the, the longevity of these polities means that there's a long sustained history, and that's an, that's another aspect of what makes the Long Island of Britain very very fascinating, mm. because there are people who've had a sense of themselves as being something distinct on planet Earth for a very very long time. And do you feel that the movement for Scottish independence then would threaten this sense? It would for me. Right. I, 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 I mean, I did, I think I, I did anyway. I think I've always classed myself way back when it wasn't political to say so. Like when I was a kid, if I'd been asked, if I was on holiday and somebody had asked me what I was, I would have said British. Even without, as a child? Yeah, okay. without meaning anything. Yeah. I think, I, yeah, I, I was just British. Or where were you from? I'm from Scotland. All right. And, but there, were inter, there, was just a, there was something interchangeable. It, dep it depend who asked me the question and in what con or what I thought they meant. Yeah. Okay. I might say British or I might say Scottish. Or, it depend. It would depend what, what yeah. the question was. But I, I never had a problem with seeing myself as British. And, and the, the United Kingdom... I mean, when the European Union was was established, it, it, it deliberately tried to mimic the union that's here, mm. but it, but it never got there. You know, G German taxes don't pay for French pensions, or in the way that you know that everything works collectively here between yes. the between the between the nations that are pulled together into the United Kingdom. The union's been an incredibly successful. It's been the best thing that happened to to any of them, either England or Scotland, it was the, the coming together, although it, yeah. was, although it was very problematic at the beginning, but then, you know, you know marriages are quite often a bit, bit difficult in the early stages, and then, and it, but it became the best thing that had ever happened to either of them. And for, and for me, the, the idea that you could break the, the place into its constituent parts and retain the value of the whole. Yes doesn't make any sense to me and I, if i was suddenly if i was suddenly told that only i was only scotland that was my bit now yes. what the, it'd be like scratching for an for an amputated limb right. you know i'd be scratching for the missing limb for the rest of my life going where where did i get cut off from down there but i suppose for some people when i speak to scottish nationalists about this kind of thing they would they see their identity very much rooted in scotland and they see this That's fine. this this other limb as a a kind of as almost Innovating that identity. Yes, you know, yes. That's but the, the question is, I can only answer the question honestly for myself. Yeah. I'm open to you know. I, I know the, the strength of feeling that, that that people who think like that. I, yeah. I know that. I don't. I wouldn't mess with it. And it's why, whenever I'm asked, I'm interviewed about it quite often. I don't ever make the economic argument about it because mm. there's all that stuff about the Barnett formula and sure. oil and. I think there's something really churlish almost about asking someone to put a a monetary value on their sense of themselves mm. you know that, that that to me is like asking a child a, a, a mother to put a value on her child's heart yeah it's a visceral thing your sense of who you are and where you belong yes and i just have to express the fact that i i feel that i belong to britain yes and i like being part of that collection of 
I like that. I've my work's taken me all over. Mm. I, I did a. I, I used to tour, tour books around and hire theatres and and do a kind of a one man show thing. And I've, I've been I've been in theatres, seventy, eighty venues up and down the country, England, uh, Scotland, Wales, yeah. Ireland, North and South, and I've never been greeted with anything but warmth. Yeah, partly because I'm coming from the coast television series background, yeah. people recognised that they had. It was hard not to like coast. It was a very yeah. gentle, celebratory offering. And I would walk on. I remember. I remember walking on stage in a huge theatre in, in in Liverpool, a city to which I have no connection. I don't have any family connection. Or I'd filmed there. Yeah. Filmed. Yeah. Done various things. I'd been on top of the 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 the, the Liver Building, and you know, I've been on the Mersey and done all sorts of stuff there. But I had no connection. And I walked out on stage in in uh, in Liverpool, and the 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 roar of welcome was so strong, I almost burst into tears. Right. It was completely overwhelming. I thought. That's that's extraordinary to be greeted in that way. Yeah, I'm not I'm not English. I'm not certainly not Liverpudlian, and yet it was like I mean, I, it, it was as if I could go home with yeah. them and get you know get tucked up in the spare bedroom <laughs> and, and given you know given a, a full fry in the morning. It was that kind of let and you think that's extraordinary, and I I can't help but feel I wouldn't want to lose that. Yeah, to break to for 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 the for the for the union to break up into its constituent parts to me would just be the less. Right. I quite understand if the, I understand the passion of people who see it differently. And with all these places that you've been to and visited, have you felt any particular spiritual, emotional, whatever connection with their particular place? Oh, goodness, yes. Um, oh, yeah, and, and in, but in various, I mean, here and abroad, I've had, I've had strong feelings of connection in New Zealand, you know, right. as far away as you can get from here. Uh, but a place like Iona, I'm very, very struck by Iona, uh, the Holy Isle off the yeah. off the west. It's off the west coast of Mull, which is also off the west coast of Scotland. So it's west of west of west. It's a tiny little scrap of a place, but I remember the first time I went there with television, and feeling a, a strong sense of connection. It's obviously a very spiritual place for a lot of people, you mm. know, Columba and, and so on. But I just felt a very strong connection to the, to the landscape there. Orkney, I absolutely I love Orkney. I've been I've been to Orkney I don't know maybe thirty times now for various reasons and I, every time I go because it can be quite a tough place to live because the weather's yeah, yeah. often atrocious and the winters are long and you know the wind blows so hard you know you've got to sometimes find some dead sheep to lie down behind just to get right. out of the wind it's it can be tough you walk yeah. about like a half shut knife but when the sun shines on Orkney it's like it's and like, can you even God, articulate like why it is? I mean, because I think everyone, this is a shared human experience, I think. People just feel a visceral connection with the place and they don't really know quite why. And I think everyone feels that sometimes. Yeah, uh, well, it depends where you want to go with it, really. I mean, the, the, in the Celtic tradition, there's the idea of thin places. Okay. Where, in the, whatever you think the Celts are, I mean, there's, you know, uh, historians dispute to this day whether the Celts ever were even... A, but nobody ever called themselves Celts Greek. It means not us. It means foreigner. So you don't call yourself foreigner. <laughs> so the Celts wouldn't have called themselves Celts. So whoever they were. But the Celtic tradition of thin places is that there are places in the landscape. They say that the, the next dimensions, maybe the, the home of the gods or, or other, you know, the, the, the multiverse, yeah. the Celtic multiverse, the idea that there were other realms that were there but invisible. And that in certain places in the landscape, the separation between ours and theirs was thin. Yes. Not a brick wall, gossamer. I understand. And the proximity to it, you would that, that's so that they say that there are places where different people will go to a certain place and feel a kind of prickling of the skin mm. and think, oh, there's something. 
yeah. there's something here. Well, the, in the Celtic tradition, that's thin, and it's because you're close to, to the to the next. To the I next mean, I've image. definitely experienced that. And, and and then, but then of course, there, then there's, you could say like the the Amesbury Archer was was dis, was excavated close by Stonehenge. And his radiocarbon dates suggest that he was that he lived and died just as the finishing touches were being put to Stonehenge, or when people were about to stop working on it after mm. a thousand years. Um, and he was he's called Amesbury Archer because the, his grave goods included flint. He'd, he'd obviously gone in with a, a, a quiver of arrows, although only the flint heads survived. Mm. And he had a, a pad, a stone pad for his arm that would have protected from the the strike of the bowstring. Yeah. And also the first gold in a burial in, in Britain. So he was someone of, of significance. Analysis of his tooth enamel showed that he had had his childhood a thousand miles away, uh, south of the Alps. Okay. And and he had come, to, probably come to Stonehenge on a pilgrimage. He, whatever they called Stonehenge in his day. Yeah. He had been drawn to it. Yeah. He had wounds, he had a badly damaged leg, probably from an ancient injury. He may have come to as though to kind of a prehistoric Lourdes. It may have been associated with healing. Ah. But in any event, he had come. And when he came, he stayed. And he rose to significance within that community. And when he died, they treated him lavishly. Right. And his son was buried nearby. And, and we know it was his son because they shared a, a mild deformity of their uh, the bones that in most people, bones in the foot that are disarticulated, were fused naturally. Right. And both these individuals had it. So they were, must have been father and son or, or related in some way. Yeah. But he's, uh, so what the point is, you, wherever you live, you acquire the, the very elements of your teeth and the making of you from the water you drink and the food you eat. Okay. You acquire, so what you eat, the, the elements become part of you. So you're connected to so the you li- So most people, most people for the longest time would might never move 20 miles from where they were born. Yeah. You know, this constant wandering, peripatetic existence that we all take for granted is new. Yeah. Most people lived and died in the same place. And you, you became literally of the place where you grew up. Right. It's in your teeth. So we could tell that the Amesbury Archer, although... He'd stayed in the southwest of England yeah. and died there. He wasn't from there. Yeah. His his very tooth enamel showed where he was from. So th- so there are maybe there are those maybe yeah. there are those connect- so when people say that they feel strongly connected to the place where they were born, it might be because they're made of it. I see. That they've makes acquired sense. it. Yeah. They've taken on the stuff of the place. Now, whether or not, which, which would account for the strength of emotion, surely. Yeah, and, and so, and 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 people have, if, if you know, as I say, people used to stay where the parent, where the parents had been, and where their parents' parents had been. Yes. Families used to be of a place for maybe hundreds of years because people didn't move, and that knowing that you're part of a a lineage yeah. that's of this place be bound to affect. Maybe it make some people say. I'm getting I'm getting the hell out of yeah, dodge. Maybe. But maybe for lots of people, knowing that your that your blood, your flesh and blood are of this place might make you feel this is you know, breathes that a man with soul so dead who never to himself has said, This is my home, my native land. You know, there's a there's something visceral for people about and do, and do you feel that? Do you feel that there is a place where you are tied to, where you belong? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I the whole place, I think. I feel connected to, to the British landscape. Right. I've felt as at home in Cornwall as I've felt in Cape Wrath as I've felt in Orkney as I've felt at home in Stirling as I've felt you know I'd, so you couldn't I've imagine felt, settling anywhere else yeah I could I, 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 I could but I, I feel a strong sense of belonging mm. and ownership 
both at the same time. I feel I belong here and I feel it belongs to me. Mm. But I, I feel I, I, I like to, it's Britain's small enough. Yeah. It's only a little wee island, yeah. <laughs> really, when you get right down to it. And I feel I feel strongly connected and, and proud of and and I enjoy it. I just and it's not nationalistic. It's not a it's not a tub thumping land of hope and glory, flower of Scotland kind of. It's not that kind of. Yeah. It's a it's a gentler feeling of. It's like this is it's like it's like an inheritance. I suppose yeah. I feel it's my. I know my. I had my DNA done for a. For a television oh, series, oh, for for you know, so a proper one, ah, proper, yeah, okay. yeah, as part of a television series that I was doing, and found out that my my mitochondrial DNA that I'd inherited from my mum, the our mitre, the the mitochondrial DNA that I have has been in the west of Scotland for about eight thousand years. Oh, okay, and my mum, the funny thing is, when I was growing up, my mum all never wanted to travel. She didn't really. We went on holidays sometimes, but she was always happiest at home. And she's from the West, she's from Renfrew, uh, outside Glasgow, and, and she's happiest at home. And I grew up in the southwest of Scotland. My dad always wanted to travel. He was always itchy feet. Yeah. And the, the, some of the markers that came up in my DNA from my father's side were from Persia. Oh, really? <laughs> and I, when I found that, it was really funny to me to know that my dad, who always wanted to be somewhere else, was from somewhere else. Yeah. And my mum, who always wanted to be at home, was from yeah. right there. Yeah. You know, she her her the stuff of her had always been there, right? From a time beyond the reach of memory, <laughs> which I find which I find funny. Now you've obviously now moved into well, obviously at GB News you're here and you're doing your own show and you're talking very much about what's happening now, not so much about what's happening yeah, in the history. That was an unexpected turn of events, though. Oh really? Yeah, I mean, I've never been a contrarian, and I was never, uh, you know, I've always been a, a kind of a. I don't, I don't know why, but I, I never really put my head up much above the parapet, so right. to speak. But first of all, with the the the, the call for Scottish independence in, in twenty fourteen, and I was asked to comment on that largely because I had I had a bit of a profile in Scotland because of a history of Scotland, which I had made the a series. few years previously. Yeah. Yeah. So for newspapers and, and other people looking for comment, I seemed like a person who would have an opinion about that. Yeah. And I think it surprised a lot of people when I came out as in favour of the United Kingdom. I think people expected me to be, you know, a brave heart, William It wasn't Wallace the opinion they wanted It wasn't, or, or, or certainly not what they were maybe expecting. Yeah. So I, I, my head was effectively above the parapet from that point on, and I became a bit of a lightning rod and have been ever since for, for people who are staunchly nationalist. I see. Um, and then when the whole... Uh, when the whole lockdown thing started, and I started being outspoken about that on on radio at first, yeah, and then when GB News started in June of last year, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think that that I had been saying things, and I think a lot of people hadn't, or very few people were saying what anything. Yeah, there was a lot of people keeping their heads down. And yes. I just blundered into it without thinking but too did, much did about you, the consequences. I mean, you know, I, I've had a similar experience insofar as if you say something that, uh, you know, certain people find rebarbative for whatever reason, you know, whether it's the unpopular or unfashionable opinion or something, you expose yourself in a way mm -hmm. that, that is, you know, I haven't experienced it until relatively recently. Um, but you but can never go back. You can't. <laughs> but all you're doing is being honest. All you're doing is saying what you think. And yeah. there's something quite freeing about that as well, isn't there? Yes, I found that it's, it's been quite, it has been tough because there's a lot of, uh, it comes with a lot of abuse yeah. and, and whatever. Yeah. But it's quite a, it's quite a, 
a fiery experience. And I suppose I have been persuaded that I'm absolutely certain that I did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Saying what I, because all I did was say what I thought. Well, that's it. I just but told it, the truth as I as I see it. Yeah. And I would I would hate to go to my grave having had the opportunity to say to tell the truth and having not told the truth. I couldn't live with well, that and so I'm pre- I've been prepared to to take the consequences of I think no, I, don't, I think that's wrong and I'm, why I'm not going to be quiet about it. Why do you think people are so threatened by the idea of someone just simply having a different worldview than them? Because the reaction isn't just well, I think Neil Oliver's wrong and this is why, which would be the adult response. It's, well, that person's evil for, for daring to say something that's, you know. Because I think there's been something, something else has been happening at the same time. I think, I think there was a polarising of, of conversation and debate was already well underway. Mm. And, you know, obviously Brexit and before Brexit, there was Scottish independence. Yeah. And, and for what and for whatever reason, and then of course the same was happening in America. Yes, you know the thing, you know Trump or not Trump. Yeah. Uh, it, it became people seemed to want a simplified people seemed to want a simplified version of everything. Mm. I don't know if people have lost their appetite for nuance and uh, contemplating grey areas. Yes, and thinking that you know geopolitics is complicated are complicated. And, and looking for simple binary answers yes. and explanations, I, I can't make head nor tail of that because it seems to me before you even start, you have to accept that you're dealing with something extremely complicated and any conversations around it are going to have to be complex and nuanced and, and to take account of all sorts of opinions. But there, se- there seems there has seemed to be a drifting away from a willingness to, to make room for other opinions. It's become very tribal and you're you're either in or out, you're yeah. left or right, you're black or white, good or bad. And this I mean And you, you pick a side. You don't even mean to, but you just by by the first utterance you make, that then defines you as you belong to all of these things. You if you say that, you therefore must think this, 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 yeah, this, this, yeah. and this. So we know who you are, you're over there. And do you think this is, just taking a broad historical f- look at that, do you think this is a relatively recent development or has there always been something within... I, I think it was partisanship is, is, is tribal behaviour. Yes, uh, but, I, but it does feel to be escalating. I can, only, I can only, I think it must be something to do with, you have to look at what's, what's different now. Mm. And it's c- clearly, you know, internet and social media, we are deluged with, with data. Mm. We've got more access to more people. I mean, when I was... A kid, you know, if you'd wanted to send a, you know, a poisonous letter to the prime minister, you'd have to have written a letter, yeah, put it in an envelope, written an address on it, get find an address, send, put a stamp on it, and send it. But now it's instantaneous. But you would have thought that would bring us together more, wouldn't it? This interconnectivity globally. Well, but it demonstrably hasn't. No, it's it's atomized. It's atomized people, and I, and and I think maybe because of all the, because there's so much and it's so confusing. There's a, I think there's an appetite for simple. Just give me simple. I Just see. tell me yeah. something to think, and I'll think that. And there are always governments or other authority figures that are ready to go. There's your, there's yes. your simple explanation for that. Yeah. You don't need to think about it. It's this. And a lot of people just, oh, thank God. I'll, I'll think that. I'll just take that. That sounds reasonable. But so part of the appeal of working here, I suppose, at GB News is, is that 
having that space to express what you feel openly, having a platform. Yeah, yes, it, and I, I like other people. I like hearing. I used to. I can remember going to the pub on a Friday night and and you'd phone around who was going. Yeah. Who's going? Who's coming tonight? Or oh, so and so. Great, because you knew that you would have a right argument with them. Yes. Yeah. That person was coming with their bizarre views. Yeah, yeah. And you would have a right set too across the two or three hours, and then part. Yeah. And maybe not see, and then come back and do it all again. You didn't. I didn't harbour grudges. I, I knew that there were people with whom I passionately disagreed, and I liked being briefly in their company. Yeah. Because it'd be all argy bargy about all this, you know. So you know, he's coming with his crazy views, <laughs> and you could enjoy all of that. But now, but but now, not so much. And I, I what's what has crystallised for me in the last couple of years is I, I feel as if I've got a really strong sense of right and wrong, mm. truth and lie, right and wrong. And for me, that is sort of like a plug of basalt. It's in, it's an immovable presence in my thinking. Yeah, I know what I think is right, and I know what I think is wrong. But when it comes to opinions. They're like the glue on post-it notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. never You move them about. My, yeah. my opinions about things, about all sorts of topics, they drift around. Yeah. And I listen, I listen to, I quite often take on the opinion of the last person that I spoke to. Yeah. If they spoke well enough or persuasively enough, I, I come away think I think that now. And then I encounter the <laughs> I next thing. I can't understand why you can't change and have, a, and listen to other, I mean, I'm interested by, other people's opinions. And to, to some extent, I find people I don't agree with more interesting because I know what I think. And if I just hear it said back to me by somebody that agrees with me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, if you we take that, think that. that analogy of the meeting up with someone in the pub who's a detractor, someone who d disagrees with you, you know, it's, it's not even that these days you'd end up fighting each other or you just wouldn't go into the pub with that person knowing that person was there. People are sealing themselves yeah. off rather than even having that. Yes, that's I mean, engagement. On GB News, I mean, for my show, when we, we phone people up, there are, uh, people are, are phoned and asked, we're going to be discussing this on the on the show. Would you like to... No, I'm not going to go anywhere near GB News because yeah. you're a, a, a whatever, a, a, an extreme right wing... Whatever they've made whatever, up in their head whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. And then, and I think, I bet you've not watched five minutes of output. Yeah. You've just... Someone told you that maybe a year ago that GB News was going to launch and it was going to be a you know, an ultra-right organisation, and they've just never bothered to verify that for themselves. Yeah. And and they're terrified of of taint by association. You know, they, they, they don't want to be, oh, I can't be seen with them. They're the, they're the it's enemy. It's very strange. It's I can't, very strange. I can't walk with them. I can't be seen in their company. And it's, really? And, and it's that inability, that thing that you, you're latching onto there, that inability to... To, the, not to see opinions as you know, to have this sense that your opinions are fixed and they can never be changed, and they you know you know, that that to me is very strange. I wonder if it relates to your you know, I mean your background in archaeology. You have to be open to changing the, the picture when you learn something new, when when some little detail comes along and changes everything. Yes, yeah, so constantly. I mean, interpretations of things in the world of archaeology are happening all the time. Yeah, because you know, it's like a you know the the jigsaw the puzzle that you want is a thousand pieces, yes. and you've maybe got eleven. Right, exactly, exactly. You know, so you you don't have a picture on the box. You don't know what you're trying to build. You're just finding little bits that maybe seem to be connected. That looks as if that's probably part of the same thing as that. Yeah. Like, and it's a very very slow process of gradually accreting and acquiring little, little so the interpretation of say say iconic sites like Stonehenge say mm. that's changed and changed and changed again during the 30 odd years that I've been involved in archaeology yes. 
and, and ideas about all of the micro subjects within archaeology they're constantly and history yeah that's the thing I mean these are these are subjects that that should be about constant debate and reevaluation of course and where would you be if they weren't where, where would you be if you weren't and this, this idea of settled that yeah that, that things like science and indeed other subjects are calcifying that that which had previously been liquid and fluid yeah is kind of it's like someone stirred in too much corn flour and it's just I think that's what frightens me about this mindset. I think that's what I find a bit chilling about this idea that of an ideology, what you describe of this, 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 all of these values, that, you know, they're fixed and we're right and everyone else is evil and wrong. It's that it's a kind of intellectual death because you're denying yourself the possibility of changing. And oh. that, that to me feels actually frightening more than anything. Yes, it's it's frightening, but it's also the end of learning. You know, mm. um, when you go into the sort of philosophy of, of science and the history of science, uh, you, you know, the idea of, um, w w which is relatively recent, paradigm shift, you, Thomas Kuhn, who, who said that, I'm not really going to butcher this terribly, but the scientists work within a within a, a cosmology or an idea or a framework that they, they think, and then then something comes along that, upsets that completely yes and there's a there's a terrible period of kind of upset and then the new paradigm forms and the scientists regroup within it and get back to everyday science yes and, and so and so the thing and so the thing moves on yeah yeah you know like like you know when when everyone thought aristotelian and ptolemaic um understanding of the way the, the lights moved in the sky and yes. ptolemy thought that the planets and the stars were nested in uh, you know, uh, uh, transparent balls like hamster balls. Yeah, one inside the other, and the planets and the stars were in the in the spaces in between. And, and, he, and he and he worked out a whole complicated way to explain what was happening in the sky. It worked, and people could navigate by it. And yeah. Columbus could get across the Atlantic with it. It worked, and then you get then you get Copernicus, and 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 um, and Johannes Kepler go nah. yeah <laughs> it's definitely the sun at the center of the solar system yeah, and yeah. everything is moving around that and this old idea of the earth being at the center and everything boom that's a part that's a paradigm shift yeah and everyone was panic stricken when it started to happen well, and then then all the scientists go right we know that now we accept that paradigm and they and they and they get on with the science within it and then probably possibly at some other point there's another there's another great shift uh, yeah. That happens, but the idea of science being settled is bonkers. Yes, bonkers. Bonkers. Science, in order to be it's pseudoscience, if you if you if your if your hypothesis is that um, that happened because uh, invisible fairies did it, yeah, you can't investigate that. You can't. The the, the fairies are invisible. Yeah, and so that's you can't, that's not an explanation. It has to be challengeable. Your, the hypothesis, in order to be properly scientific, must be something that can be challenged and and almost ideally falsified, yeah. proven wrong. Because if all you find is evidence that backs up your hypothesis, you're not learning anything. You learn something when you actually your hypothesis is disproved. Now there's now you've got something to add to the sum of your wisdom. Well, maybe it would be helpful for people to acknowledge that those things hurt. Being proven wrong about something is upsetting. It's not easy, and like you say, you have to regroup. You have to go through that almost mourning for the, the knowledge you thought you had. And you have to, it's like a little death. Uh -huh. And then you, you come out stronger and better. In the way that Darwin really struggled with what he discovered about Yes. You know. But it's, that's, that's how you learn. Mm. You, you learn from, because what you thought was true isn't. Yeah. yeah. What? <laughs> that's a moment of learning. If all you find all the time is reinforcing your hypothesis, you're not learning anything, you're just reinforcing what you already think you know. Yeah. 
if that gets turned on its head, that's like, wow. Yeah. Now you're, what? Yeah. I was completely <laughs> wrong about that. And now it's this. And that's, a, that's then you stumble, then the, the species stumbles forward again. Yeah. A, knowing a but little that, bit more. But that can only happen if there are people who are willing to be honest and express ideas or explore ideas that may not be completely right themselves. No. But are against the grain. It from was time like the climate time. debate. It's like the climate debate. That's the terrible thing that that is now that it's now practically illegal to, yeah. s- to suggest alternatives to the to the accepted orthodoxy. The science is settled on that now. And if you if you say anything apart from what we what what we're telling you now about what is causing the, the climate to change and the, the CO two levels and all the rest of it, this is it. One hundred percent certain. We don't need to know any more about that. And it, all the many many laureate holding scientists around the world who are saying, hang, 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 hang on, hang on, got an idea, yeah. possibly not just what you think, cast out into outer darkness. What's the point of that? That I mean, but you see that in every realm, don't you? That that idea of, you know, we've settled, we've decided, and th- these are now not to be challenged, not to be, but even... Where's even the if, fun in that? Well, even a challenge that is wrong or turns out to be wrong still has merit in a way because it, it ends up reinforcing yes. the other view. Yes, it's you either, know, either it, your, your hypothesis is now a bit stronger having been challenged or if it's disproven, well, in a way that's great because now you know something new. That's, wh- that's the endeavour, that's the scientific endeavour is to, is, to, is to keep on learning a little bit more. Yes. And everyone should be able to participate in these conversations. I mean, there is a sense in which, you know, as you're, you're suggesting there, that there are, there's, there's expertise, they get to talk about this, no one else gets to be involved. And is that maybe what's happened? There's, because of the democratisation of the conversation through social media, there's more of a kind of need to erect the barriers about who gets to talk about what. There's definitely, there's definitely a religiosity has come into everything. You saw it very clearly around around COVID mm. that there was good signs and there, and there were heretics it, and it came with with rituals and yes. and things that you had to be seen doing and 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 wearing face masks. It, it took on all the all of the aspects of of something. The NHS was the church, and the church had to be protected. Never mind the congregation. Just protect the edifice of the church. I mean, we've seen that before down through the ages. Mm. Protect the church. So there was this there was this religiosity that came down about it, and that that uh, that way in which the alternative view on anything is increasingly just this, the knee jerk spontaneous reaction to it is to see it as heresy. And what do you do with heretics? Well, you burn them at the stake. And, and metaphorically, people have been being burned at the stake. Well, I found it surprising because everyone knew this was a new virus and there wasn't the kind of scientific consensus that would justify uh, that kind of... I mean, if you know, the Great Barrington Declaration, for instance, these are not um, chances. Leading epidemiologists have got a different voice in this and, and maybe it's healthy to hear all voices, even if they're wrong. This is my point, even if they're wrong. Back to that point we were discussing around earlier, I wonder if there's just so much information out there now that people are deluged with. Yes. That some, yes. In, that, in that ocean, in that ocean of, it's like a, a ship has sunk and there's just wreckage everywhere floating. And people just want, and just give me, just get me in the life raft. Yes. Just, I'll be in, just put me in, it, just put me somewhere safe. I don't want to consider all these there's more options every day about everything. Yeah. Just tell me something simple. And that plays into the hands of kind of demagogic characters that say, you don't need to think, just follow me. 
And there's a comfort in that, isn't there? Of course. The history of, of mass movements down through the ages, Eric Hoffer, True Believer, and, and all of that thinking, you know, that, that's, been, that's happened again and again and again. You don't need to, you know, freedom of thought, that kind of personal responsibility, having to make your own choices, is an, can be an onerous burden. Mm. And, and it's, t- it's been tempting for different people and different groups and civilizations again and again and again to absolve themselves of the burden of freedom. Yeah. And, and just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And then if it goes wrong, I can just say I was only obeying orders. I'm only, I, my idea, they told me to do it and I trusted that it was right. Yeah. And, and people feel absolved of the responsibility to think for themselves. It's, a temp- it's tempting to just, just tell me what to wear, tell me where to go, tell me when to go to the toilet, when to have my lunch, where to sleep. And, I, and then, I, and then it, either it works and that's great. And if it goes wrong, it's not my fault. Mm. That's a tempting offering. Of course. To be just, to have your life simplified down to taking from someone on high, some demagogue who says, you're unhappy, life is hard, you're struggling to put food on the table or heat your homes. Mm. Just do this. But then when it comes to something like uh, a pandemic or something like even, you know, geopolitics, these big complicated issues, you know, there is a place for expertise, surely. There is, you know, it, it, it's really important to listen to those voices. Yes, yes, of course. You do, want, you do want to hear them, but you want to hear them all. You want to hear as many as possible. Mm. Ideally, because if you don't know what you're dealing with, um, you, you, want a, you want a range of people coming forward with ideas. It used to be like that. Like some of the great advances, Industrial Revolution and all of that, which yeah. obviously I think we can all agree that the Industrial Revolution changed the world. Even Although even the Industrial Revolution is now being pulled down as you know, some sort of, I don't know, some sort of expression of white supremacy. Yes, yeah, some people are whatever. trying to say but that. The, but yeah. the Industrial Revolution has, uh, uh, more than any other uh, paradigm shift, has lifted people out of poverty, it's fed the hungry, it's it's brought medicines to the sick and all the right. Industrial Revolution. Well, so much of the Industrial Revolution was being, was the, some of the advances were, were not specialists. Mm. They were kind of like, you know, you know, people who are blacksmiths and, and, and people who knew how to you know, do a bit of, you know, boiler making. And they, on the quiet, in their garage, in their spare time, they were tinkering about with things. Yes. And, and coming forward with, 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 with some of the contributions that, that helped to make the bigger steps. Mm. But the, the, the achievements of the Industrial Revolution were not all, they were not all uh, achieved by, you know, card-carrying, certificated experts in the field. Mm. Was, you know, gentlemen... Uh, you know, dabblers, dilettantes, you, you know, who, who who experimented and, and had a goal yes. and came forward with ideas. That was that was part of what drove the industrial revolution. You didn't have to be you didn't have to be you know qualified in your field before anybody would accept any idea that you might have about how to improve the you know a steam engine. Yeah, it's like come on, come all. And I th- I think th- this past couple of weeks has really hammered home to me how terrified some very powerful people are of freedom of speech and freedom of expression and exchange of ideas. Elon Musk and Twitter. With yeah. Elon Musk and Twitter. I mean, the, the, the sheer hysteria from people who fear that all of a sudden this platform might open up to some voices that weren't there before or who were silenced before. Why is that threatening? I, you know, Some of the clips that I saw that you'll have seen as well, where people were saying, do you realise that now that uh, Elon Musk has got hold of Twitter... Before you know where we are, people might be using this to uh, to spread disinformation, and they might be silencing people that they don't agree with. 
<laughs> and, they, and they might censor opinions that don't fit with their world. You think that's what's be, that's what's been happening. Yep, that we've apparently, already, already there. That's apparently <laughs> why Elon Musk decided to buy it was to was to overturn that. And of course, what they fear is opinions that they disagree with suddenly, or you know, or the opinions they agree with being censored. But of course, that a lot of people have experienced that already. What's I think what's well part of what's very interesting is it makes it makes. Th- you think very seriously about what you mean by concepts like freedom, mm. like freedom of speech, like democracy. You know, for a long time, those are just words that we were kind of casually using yeah. without paying proper attention to them. And they actually enshrine golden treasure mm. in, in terms of their significance for the, the way that civilization and, and societies function. Yeah. And they should never have been used casually. And we're, we're all being invited, well, we should be being invited, what do you mean by freedom of speech? And I've had to think about what I mean yeah. by freedom of, freedom of speech. And say, so like, well, that's more complicated than that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, and all, all of the democracy, what do you mean by that? Who, who should make decisions? Do you mean direct democracy? Do you mean a referendum every day about, mm. you know, about, or, or is it representative d- democracy where you've got elected people making those decisions for you? Yeah. Because, you know, during COVID, the elected, that, 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 you know, those elected representatives, you suddenly realise that they can do extraordinary things. Mm. They, can, they can take to themselves the power to shut you in your house for 23 hours a day. I don't remember. Is that right? Can yeah. they actually do that? And yes, it turns out they can. Yes. Goodness, right, okay, let's let's rethink then about what exactly do we mean by personal liberty? Because it turns out that any bunch of Johnny-come-lately, you know, happen to be this cadre, this cohort of elected representatives, they can send us all to our homes for 23 hours a day. Well, it was the and same. Think, is that, can they? It was the same with Brexit, where you had, where, you know, the, the distinction between direct democracy and parlementary democracy became very stark because the people we'd elected, a lot of them, we're trying to overturn, overturn it. The, the votes, you know. And, and so I've, yeah, when it comes to, say, freedom of speech, you think, well, if it, if it has to be a choice between say anything or say only the prescribed laminate card that you get handed, these are the things that not only you can say, but make sure you say all of these things on a regular basis, yes. like taking your vitamins. Have you said this today? Because you, <laughs> you didn't say it yesterday. Say it. I would go with say anything. And and to be quite if if it's a binary choice, but I think that's people's fear is that if you have carte blanche, then then what you do is you you invite the worst elements of humanity. I mean, if it's, I'm not saying it would be ideal. I'm yeah. saying you, where you feel you've been backed into a corner where you can see these ten things, yeah, or you can say whatever you like, and the and the the return on that is that anyone else can say whatever they like. I'd have yeah. to let, I'd have to go that way. Well, that's, that's my feeling. About that's the it. way I would go. But th- that's my feeling, not just because I think morally that's right, but but and it uh, allows each each of us to have individual agency, which I think is key. But it also, I think it's because I don't trust small elite groups to decide on everyone else's behalf, whether no. that be the state or Silicon Valley or whatever that might be. Yeah, I, I just find that to be a frightening prospect. Because you see it all the time. People are quite well behaved, really. Yeah, people. I mean, before there was the the, the the regulations of the last few years, if people knew that they were ill, most people would stay out the office. Yeah. They'd stay home. I'm not going to spread this around. Of course, I won't yeah. go to that party. P- people just did that. Mm. And likewise, most people don't. Although they could at any moment use say anything, use any bad words, yeah. express it, they just don't because p- properly, reasonably socialised people they moderate their behaviour. You get the odd, you get 
loose cannons and people yes. and you get you get people who set out to shock and that's fine as well because you're like oh that's that's him yeah. he says that's him that says those things and, and you can handle that most people moderate won't go most people won't go on twitter and say appalling things using the most offensive language they just won't because they the, don't the problem might be that because of twitter those people seem amplified and that's why we're now in a situation where people think that that's the norm they, they, they've convinced. That's why we have people who are convinced that the world is crawling with neo-Nazis all of a sudden. Uh, but they're not. They're still a small minority, which uh -huh. is as you know, you don't want any more of that or any, you know. But they they think uh, if you allow freedom of speech on Twitter, say, or any social media platform, then it'll all. It's like an infection. Everyone will become this kind but of evil. That, you know, that, that, the, the legislation that, that's that's moving through this thing about uh, you know the, the online safety bill. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's not alone in this. There have been so many instances where legal language, which ought to be so precise, yes. to the point where that's why you have lawyers, because nobody else can understand contracts, yeah, yeah. because they're, they're so tightly screwed down to make sure there's no uncertainty, no ambiguity. That's why, that's why you have lawyers that do these things. Yes. And now you've got things like this. Could, it's legal but harmful. Yeah. It says who? Who's defining harm? It's like stirring up hatred in the thing that was happening north of the border. But that's what does that even what does that mean? And who gets to decide if hatred, whatever hatred is, has been stirred up? Whatever you mean by that. Well when the SNP were pushing that through their their bill, no one ever answered that question. And it was put to people like Hamza Yusuf and, and no one ever explained what they mean by stirring up hatred. It just sounds like a mandate for the government to Silence whoever they want. Yeah, and the, and the, and the fact that the onus is being put on those people who own the those platforms, they will. It goes without saying that they will censor routinely. Yeah. To save themselves the possibility of letting anything slip through. Yes. So they'll just silence. They'll just play whack a mole the whole time without everything. They'll just become more censorious. Mm. Because well, if they let for anything for self anything. for self preservation, yeah. so the very so the very idea, the, the, the legislation that's that's going through at the moment, is going to uh, transform those online platforms into safe, whatever safe means, places for for public debate. No, yeah. because if any 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 self preserving tech giant is just going to employ bots and people and yeah. and whatever to make sure nothing remotely off color ever sees the light of day. How, I've asked a lot of people this, but I'm interested in how we resolve this, this problem of the, the kind of tribalism that we see to the extent that people aren't thinking anymore. And you get these kind of hysterical outbursts about Elon Musk taking over Twitter and uh, people marshalling on one ideological line or the other. And it feels as though it's at the moment, in the midst of it, it feels irresolvable. It feels like we're in these echo chambers now and there's nothing we can do but is there a way like out uh, it does feel like that mm. and this this uh, uh, helen dale i think talks uh, it's not her idea but i've spoken to helen dale at length about siloing yeah you know where we're all being shepherded into these places where we only hear and see each other yes and you, and you also it happens to you you are you're assigned your silo where you where you belong and that's that's you forever yes i i think to some extent for as long as these platforms exist this will be the reality the reality of them yes i do i sometimes wonder what would happen if you switched all of it off for a month mm. as a thought experiment you know if facebook tiktok twitter whatsapp weibo everything was just turned off for a month 
I, th I, I wonder, would we relate more in a, to one another in a more open and polite fashion or, or not? I don't know, but I think I'm tempted to think it would be something worth worth it doing because be a, I, be I, seem to, I seem to remember that 10 years ago or whatever, there was less heat. Oh, yeah. There's, 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 a, been a, there's a build up. It's like being in a, a, a shut room with a fire on and the heat is just building and building and building and you think, well, the only, you just got to put the fire out or, or open the door and go somewhere else. My one consolation is that when I see people who can be the most terrible, terribly behaved online, when I see them in the real world, they're almost, it's a different thing. They, they are my, my personal experience of that, <laughs> my personal experience is that I live in Stirling, which is, it's a town of 60, 70,000 people, so it's small. Yeah. And because I've been on television for a lot of years, I'm very recognised in, in my little in my little world. A lot of people know, and they, they know where I live, and you know, I'm just a member of the, you know, I'm known. And I've been on the receiving end of the dog's abuse online for yeah. since you know for a decade. Yes, and it's incessant, and sometimes it's massive pylons, and you know, attempts to cancel me, and I've had all sorts of things have happened. But I'm out and about. Go to the shops, pick up food, groceries, whatever, walk my dogs. People come up to me every day. And without exception, I've only been spoken to by people who are friendly. Yeah. Yeah. I've never had a single instance of somebody coming up and being rude to me or offering me any abuse. And if you, if you went on your online experience, you would assume... You'd assume that every yeah. other person yeah. uh, is ready to call you the most <laughs> foul things and accuse you of, of everything under the sun. Yes. But they just don't. Because because what's happening in reality is that the, I must be walking past people who sometimes tweet terrible things about me, but they, they wouldn't dream of actually coming up and saying it to me. But people who either aren't on social media, and there are, let's remember, there are lots of people who don't do it at all. Yes. Everyone who comes up and talks to me is polite. I have, I have nothing but good engagements with with people of well, all mate, ages and of all ages and creeds. It's mate, not it's not just it's like all people just be like your own. It's not it's all all sorts of folk come up to me, say, "Oh, great, I saw you on the telly," and or they cast their minds back to yeah. a program that I was in ten years ago. And what was it like when you were on such and such an island? And but maybe those people who uh, attack you online, they couldn't afford to come up and talk to you because if they did. They might see you as a human being and, oh. and, and understand that uh, you're not the monster that they've, that created, they've created in their head. In their heads. Yeah, and that's what it is. I think they want to perhaps sustain that uh, that illusory oh. uh, demon of their own making. But to actually, know? but to actually go up to somebody who's standing in the in the queue, yes, you know, about to pay for their food or walking their dog, it's it's a different prospect to go up to them when they're doing ordinary human things. Yes, you know, dropping their kid off at, at, at you know at school. When you see them doing the sort of things that you do and that you can identify with, to then go up and accuse them of being Eichmann is <laughs> a bit different. And maybe that's maybe that's the key, isn't it? Is is uh, finding that common humanity again and, and uh -huh. uh, remembering that online you're dealing with a human being. Digital, I think, is the problem. Yeah, yeah. I I crave analog. Yeah. When you're when you're in the room with people, it's different. When you're face to face with people. It's different because that's who we are and yeah. have been for 200,000 years. We are social people who read cues, who read body language, who by and large understand instinctively what to do in social situations. You know, I mean, we all just walked into this room here mm. and we all knew roughly what we were going to do. We sat down, we engaged quite happily. But, I mean, essentially, we're murderous chimps. 
capable of doing untold damage. But none of that happens because, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of being social, having society, having community, we don't behave like that. Yeah. And people that do behave like that, the sort of people that jump in here and stand up on the desk and kick the microphones in the air, you, you don't meet many of them no. because most people are fine. Yeah. Uh, but because you're interacting with them digitally, virtually, without seeing them, without yeah. knowing anything about them except their handle and the 10 minutes that you once saw of them on the television, you're engaging, you're, you're fighting ghosts. Yeah. You're engaging with ciphers and things that don't really exist. If you go into a room with, with people, oh. Yeah. Well, it goes back to finding the human connection, which is where we started with the archaeology, of course, and those, oh. those small human details. That's the appeal. Uh -huh. And they forget that, I think. Uh -huh. They forget that online, and it's very dangerous. The, I mean, the, the, the ways in which we are all the same, all connected, all one race, all one species, and you know, and you only, you cannot help but realise that when it's analogue, when you're in the room, or when you're just face-to-face, -face, it's very hard to summon up the the vitriol, yeah. the necessary vim and vigour, sturm and drang to really have a go at somebody. Yeah. It's difficult to do yeah. online. Yeah, it's the worst. I hate them. <laughs> and I'm going to tell them. Never have the nerve to do it. And before we finish, I just want to say you have a very impressive dog. You mentioned walking your dog. Then. Dogs, I mean, dogs, two Irish wolfhounds, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's the biggest kind of dog you can get, isn't at it? At any given moment, the tallest dog, yeah. there are heavier dogs, I think, but at any given moment, the Highest off the ground dog yes. will either be an Irish wolfhound or a Great Dane. Right. So it depends. I it, see. it moves okay. between the two, but they're both pretty much the same height. Yes. So, you know, if, if Gracie was in here, her back would be up there. I mean, that's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, she'd look, she would, you know, <laughs> she licks her head a, height. She's quite a gentle creature. Mercifully, yeah. it's the big, big, uh, the bigger the dogs, they, they tend, they've got nothing to prove. Yeah. In the same way that, you know, um, you know, what probably, Probably Tyson Fury doesn't throw his weight around very much because he's got nothing to prove. Yes, he well, is the heavyweight champion of the world and everyone kind of knows it. And Gracie walks into the room with other dogs and thinks, well, no, no, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't face any particular threat here. No, but the most aggressive experience I've had with the dog is a chihuahua. So there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you get no grief from Gracie. Neil, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, Neil Oliver. And if you enjoyed our conversation, why not check out Neil's latest book, which is called The Story of the World in a Hundred Moments. And if you enjoyed the episode, please do like and subscribe and come back again next week where there'll be another fabulous guest. See you then.